Hi, this is Bob Groves, and welcome to another in the series of the Provost podcast that we call Faculty and Research. This week, we're joined by Joan Alker, the executive director and co-founder of the Center for Children and Families here at Georgetown. She's also a research professor at the Georgetown University McCourt School of Public Policy. Joan is a leading national expert on Medicaid policy, and her work focuses on health coverage, especially the care for low-income children and families. Her areas of expertise include Section 1115 Medicaid demonstration policy, an important component of the program, the Children's Health Insurance Program, and the intersection of public and private coverage. She is the lead author of the Center's annual report on uninsured children, which is released every year jointly with state partners from around the country. The report receives widespread media attention every year, in the last few years reaching audiences in the range of 50 to 100 million. Other recent work includes a project with University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, looking at the role of Medicaid in rural America, and also various papers looking at the impact of Medicaid work requirements on families. Joan, I'm, I'm really pleased to have persuaded you to join us today and welcome you to this little podcast. Thank you. Oh, thanks for having me, Bob. I think it might be good to start with telling uh, me and the audience more about your center. So what's its mission? How long has it been around? What are its chief goals and so on? Sounds good, yeah, because I think the Center for Children and Families is, um, it's not your typical academic research center in many ways. It's something that uh, arose out of a desire by the David Lucille Packard Foundation to ensure that all of America's children had health insurance. So this year, the center will be 15 years old, and we're busier than ever, I can tell you right now, with the events of, of the country, which I'm sure we'll get to. But, you know, we've gotten a little bit bigger every year. Um, we're about uh, 16 people now, plus a number of students that we use, work with, which is great. Um, but our central project that we were founded, essentially, um, with the support of the Packard Foundation, to be the technical assistance hub, the anchor for this project called Ensuring America's Children. And the idea at that time was to have some uh, work in a, in a number of states because, as you know, Medicaid is a really complicated program. A lot of federal health policy when it comes to low-income families is a really complicated mix of federal and state policy actions. Unlike Medicare, which is a federalized program, um, states have a lot of flexibility in terms of the choices they make with the Medicaid program, but they're operating with a really complicated web of sort of federal rules and federal funding, and, and then they make their own choices. So our work has to operate at both levels. We have to understand the federal policy. We try to make it better. And we support our state partners who are trying to encourage their states to make good choices. So the idea behind the project initially was to have some leader states. Remember, 15 years ago, we didn't have the Affordable Care Act. We had the Children's Health Insurance Program, but it wasn't uh, as robust, really, as it, it became after 2009. So the idea was to have some kind of leader states that would really get far in covering um, all kids. 
Now, those leader states at that time were the more progressive states, Washington State, Oregon, California. But over time, um, the project has really shifted and broadened. I personally have really pushed to get the project out of just leader states into some of the tougher states uh, to work in. Um, because I think uh, folks need more support there. So for example, I am very passionate about doing all my work in the South and, and we'll come back to that. But, but over time, of course, we're now in a, in a different uh, world because we have the Affordable Care Act and that creates a whole new complicated set of circumstances. So we are really a, a public policy research center. We have a mission. Our mission is to ensure that all kids and families have access to high quality affordable care. And we're trying to impact the public policy discourse. That's what it comes down to. And to do that in ways that are not traditional ways that you would really think of from academia. We're very much out of the ivory tower, we're working with partners who are on the ground every day. We're releasing our reports with those partners. We're doing Twitter, we're using blogs. We do a lot of work with the media. And um, our partners are working directly with families who are impacted by these changes. We work with the American Academy of Pediatrics, many, many others. So what's central to our work is both the widespread partnerships that we have and also being a really credible source that both, you know, they know that they can rely on us for, for good data, but also to have a strategic sense and a compassionate sense of what's happening to families uh, every day across the country. Going back to the beginning, it was, it was kicked off with an initiative from Packard, it sounds like, the Packard Foundation. Have there been different eras of the center? Does the Packard Foundation still play the same role or has, have things changed over time? Yeah, that's a great question. So we, we have really um, diversified in our funding sources, but that project remains central to who we are. We, just to say, um, I like to keep our money really clean. You know, as you know, we're 100% externally funded um, we don't take any money from actors in the healthcare industry. We don't take money from insurance companies. We don't take money from drug companies. And we actually don't take any money from government either. It, we're very fortunate that we've been able to, to rely entirely on the foundation funding for our work. So um, the Packard Foundation has worked pretty actively to get other funders engaged in this project that we are focused on and to also expand the reach of the states that we're working in and to support this network of state partners. So today we have multiple funders who are engaged with this state project. Um, the Robert Wood Johnson recently began supporting us and support some of the states we work in. Just the other day, we got our first grant from the Kellogg Foundation um, to allow us to move into Mississippi, which I'm very excited about and we may move into other states uh, with the Kellogg Foundation. So the Packard Foundation has done a really good job of expanding the playing field here. And I should say, we also are um, engaged in federal work affecting the federal discourse, regulations that are coming out, Medicaid waivers. So uh, we have a range of projects. For example, we have one project that focuses really on the question of Medicaid expansion. There are, after the Supreme Court ruled um, the Affordable Care Act, it's optional for states. And we've still got uh, 12 states that have not picked it up. So that's an area we've been very active in. Um, so we've diversified our work from that first project with the Packard Foundation, but we are very fortunate in that most of our grants are 
close to general support and that affords us a lot of flexibility in terms of picking the issue areas we work on. Sometimes we do get funded to do a paper, specific paper here and there, and we do that if it's a paper we wanna do. But unlike most centers, we're not so much project-based. They're really investing in us, CCF, in our judgment, in our nimbleness and our flexibility, and our partnership with all of these state folks and others that we work with around the country. Yeah, t- tell us more about these partners. Do they come to you? Who are they? Uh, do you seek them out? Uh, what do you do together? Yeah, so I'm going to first talk about our state partners, and then I'm going to talk some about some of our national partners. So our state partners, I have to say, are for all of us who work at CCF, they are one of the main reasons we like to, to come to the virtual office every day. We, we are so passionate and invest in our state partners, and generally our state partners are nonprofit 501c3 groups that are working at the state level, and they typically are children's uh, policy and advocacy organizations. For example, Utah Voices for Children has been in our, prog- our project ever since we started. Arkansas Advocates for Children and Families. And then there are also quite a number of our partners who are broader sort of public policy, low-income think tank advocacy kind of groups like the Florida Policy Institute, like actually they just changed their name, but the Center for Public Policy Priorities in Austin, Texas. So, so these are all groups. They're not typically, uh, they're not university-based. They're really mostly child, but low-income focused groups operating at the state level. Some of them also do Kids Count, which you may have heard of as a project of the Annie E. Casey Foundation. That's another one of our funders that we work with. So, and that's a very data-intensive project. So there's some overlap there. On the state, uh, so what do you bring to them that they can't do themselves? We hope that we, we bring a lot to them. A couple of things. We have a very uh, expert staff in Medicaid policy is really complicated and it's changing all the time. And as I mentioned, it's sort of this complex interweaving of federal and state choices and, and requirements. For example, if there is a new regulation um, or even sub-regulatory guidance about Medicaid that has come out, we keep track of that and we might go to a state partner and say, ah, you got to watch out for this because your state might be doing this now and that's problematic. Or you should push your state to, for example, uh, reduce the red tape in the renewal process. I can tell you that for children, most uninsured children are eligible for Medicaid or CHIP, but they're just not currently enrolled, about 50, 60% of them. A lot of times they're losing coverage just due to red tape. Maybe the state sent a letter Said a big mailing out, a lot of those addresses were wrong. You know, particularly now, there's so much uh, job loss going on, uh, health coverage loss. So uh, a child may lose their coverage simply because the parent didn't respond to the letter, even though the parent maybe didn't get the letter. So those are the kinds of issues, and we know about state best practices, and a lot of our faculty has worked at the state level as well. So, so it's a little wonky, so bear with me. But Right now, states can choose if they want to cover lawfully residing children and pregnant women in their first five years of being in the country. And that's a choice that came about as a consequence of 2009, there were changes in the federal law. 
And uh, what many folks didn't realize, because you had to read really complicated guidance and figure it out and submit a question to the federal agency, is that states could actually get a higher match rate for covering those kids than most of them realized. So without getting into all the gory details, there were about 12 states that could actually get a 100% federal match for those children, but hardly anybody knew about this because it was really weedy. So we knew it and we looked down at those 12 states and we knew state partners in a lot of those states. Uh, some of them we didn't and reached out to them. Some of them were already in our project, but we said, hey, did you know that your state can get 100% federal match to cover these children? And that's important not only for the kids, there's not a ton of kids who fall in that category, but for Latino families who have very high rates of uninsured kids, it creates a more welcoming environment that the state is doing a positive change for, for immigrant families. Utah, South Carolina were a couple of states where this was true and we worked with the advocates and they got the state to change the policy. Um, and a number of states picked that up. And it was very much in part to this chain of us getting the information out. Sometimes the advocates um, and the states agreed to do this quietly. I'll just, now I'm outing her, but Governor Haley's office actually made this change pretty quietly. Um, and we had talked to some of the advocates in the state and they moved it, moved it quietly up the chain and it got done. Some states did it very publicly. Florida, there was a big campaign to do this. Arkansas, there was a campaign for years and years, our group there worked. So those are some of the kind of tangible public policy changes that feel great when we can get them done. But as I say, it's such a complicated mix of federal rules and money and, you know, it's just, it's just very hard to figure it out, frankly. Let, let me do the opposite question. So what do the partners bring to you then in fulfilling your mission? The partners bring an incredible amount to us. They, first of all, are giving us, we learn from them every day. We learn what's going on in their state. A lot of times, you know, they'll hear about things um, that nobody knows about. And so they're bringing information our way, which is critical because you can't understand Medicaid unless you know what's operating at the state level. They also, when we release our reports, a lot of times we do a co-release with our partners. And our report every fall, um, we use Census Bureau data from the American Community Survey to look at the rate of children's coverage. So when we release that, we release that with our state partners. And what we do with our communication staff is um, we pull out their specific state statistics for them. We work with them on all the release materials. We actually have a communications firm that's part of this project too. So we have a lot of capacity there. And so they do their own release of our report in the state. And they use it because we do it in late fall to set the agenda for the upcoming legislative session, which starts in January. So we typically have 30 to 35 states that co-release our report. So I can tell you that gets our report out into state capitals in a way that most academic research is not getting there. And that's how we've gotten in recent years, because unfortunately the number of uninsured children has been going in the wrong direction since President Trump took office and we were really the first ones to, to break the news. You know, we have gotten media reach of, you know, over 100 million and they're a big part of that. But, you know, that, 
as I say, it is a joy for us to work. We learn from them. They're the experts of what's going on in their communities. And so it's very much a two-way street. And I think that's why it works. Mm -hmm. Because what I really um, came to this work with and everybody I hire, we talk about this. We have to operate out of the deepest respect for our state partners and all our partners. Partnership is central to who we are. And I don't want to be that kind of, you know, inside the beltway or we need to be very humble in how we work with our state partners. And we are bringing information um, and strategic thought to them, but they're bringing so much to us as well. First of all, you bring data and then you bring knowledge, substantive knowledge of legal guidance, uh, both regulatory and statutory, I assume, that requires the assembly of a, of a staff that becomes deeply knowledgeable in that. And, and the groups throughout the country just can't afford that expertise. They're, they're sort of on the front lines of advocacy. So speak to us about that balance between advocacy and evidence-based guidance. You must be encountering that every day too in this. And how do you navigate those tricky shoals? Well, that's a great question. We have really only ourselves and our reputation, right? I mean, we're, as you think about, as we attempt to influence the public policy discourse at Georgetown Center for Children and Families, you know, one of the advantages to us being at the university is we bring obviously some credibility just from the Georgetown name. But, you know, we work every day to earn that credibility. And so, of course, everybody makes mistakes, um, but we strive to have really high standards for the data we use and for the information that we're bringing. Not only, not only is it good data, but also that it's grounded in reality, the reality of what's happening for families and what's happening um, for states. And, you know, it's interesting. I think that we come to this with values. And I actually, as I was thinking about this podcast, you know, I think Georgetown is a great place to do this work from because of Georgetown's Jesuit identity. That is rooted in the fact that, you know, we, we bring values to the work that we do and we're not shy about that. But at the same time, we try very, very hard to be true to our mission. And what we care about is advancing the good policy choices, particularly for low-income children and families. And I think as long as we stay true to that, we're on pretty safe ground. And of course, we're a pretty known quantity now, particularly with the media. Um, we've been around for a while. And so, so we just, we strive very hard to be honest brokers with our partners, with the media, and just bring good evidence, but also, like I say, we, we don't shy away from our values. That's a reality for the work we do. I'd be interested in your reflecting back over these 15 years. I, I assume there were some years of hardship and some years of plenty. And as you reflect back on the growth of the center and building it up, were there moments of, of real struggle and uh, you were worried about the future? and? What's it like running a center the way you have and making it so successful over a 15-year run? I'll probably tempt fate by saying this, but I, but I have to say that we have been so fortunate that we really have not had financial concerns. We're very, very lucky, and that's, I think, atypical for our kind of center. And of course, that could change any day. <laughs> I mean, the funders could go in a different direction. 
So, but we really haven't. In fact, we've, you know, I think we had maybe six people um, when we started CCF and now we have 16. So we just, we've sort of been on a, a one, one way direction of getting bigger. And I, I frankly resist getting a lot bigger because I think we'll lose our, our nimbleness. But what I feel stress about is, and what I first worried about a lot when I got this job was I want to make sure that we see what's around the corner, right? So we stay relevant. I don't want to get too kind of stuck in what we do that we can't be nimble and that we can't see where we got to go. And also, of course, we are at, you know, the funders can always change, um, change their direction. But I think what has given us the staying power that we have is the fact that it's not just about us, it's about our network that we bring. And the value of that network is increasingly seen around the country. And that's just the way health policy for low-income people and families is in this country. Unless it becomes completely federalized, it is this complex web of federal and state policy. And that's where we live. And we've always taken that very seriously, both sides of that equation. And I think a lot of folks may focus just on the federal or just on the state, but the fact that we um, live and take both seriously has helped us stay relevant because we can pivot to the exchanging external environment. And certainly there have been changes. Uh, we're doing a lot more work now in the area of early childhood, which is um, of growing interest to many and to the funders, very important. I'll say this, this I guess is sort of a big picture. As I mentioned, we were founded to reduce the number of uninsured children, ideally to none. We've gotten very close to that in this country. We got to almost 96% of children being insured in 2016. That was the best that we had seen really since the data came out. So it's sort of like, okay, let's, let's pivot to making sure those kids are really getting high quality care. And let's pivot to trying to reduce some of the racial disparities that we see in the provision of healthcare services. You know, unfortunately, uh, we haven't really been able to do that because we've kind of been in an existential fight and crisis <laughs> over the provision of healthcare in the last few years. And of course, now we're in this pandemic, but that's where I see us going. And in particular, um, most care for low-income children and families is uh, provided by Medicaid-managed care companies in this country. And I think that's just a huge issue area I've been wanting to work on for years, and we never quite get to it. There's no transparency in the data there. There's not enough accountability for all the public taxpayer dollars that are being spent for these kids, and uh, that's critical. So we're going to have to be able to get under the hood and start impacting Medicaid managed care itself to address many of the troubling racial disparities we see the deficits in the kind of care uh, that kids are receiving. So that's where I see us going. But that's always sort of been my worry is how to stay a step ahead, right? Uh -huh. and, and not be blinded by what we've been doing to be able to change and stay relevant. I want to talk about you a bit, if, if we could. So uh, in talking to young people about people they admire, they often ask the question, so how did you plan out your life? And I think many of us don't have real plans. We end up doing things that we think are important. But what about your early days? What, what did you find interesting in your life? And how did you evolve into uh, being so focused on child health? 
Yeah, well, that is a great question. And as you say, I, I sometimes get that question and it, I never had a career plan, not the least bit intentional for me. So I have no idea how I ended up here other than to just say that I've always wanted to work on issues that I care about and where I feel like I was making some kind of contribution to making our country a more just and equitable place. And I think for me, um, I grew up, both my parents were professors of international relations and we spent time living abroad and I did graduate work in political science in England. And I was so struck uh, by how European democracies in general have so much stronger social support systems for their residents. And I was really fascinated by the differences in parliamentary systems and how our system of governance really fails um, low-income families, particularly low-income families of color. So just sort of one of these random things, when I came back, I ended up working at the National Coalition for the Homeless for five years, and that really opened my eyes to poverty and inequality and the intersection with racism in our country and how inadequately our political system is responding to these inequities. So. So I knew I wanted to work on reducing those kinds of inequalities. And I ended up focusing my career on Medicaid and access to healthcare for low-income families. And I'm just so glad that I did. It's such a fascinating area. There's never a dull moment. And I think that Medicaid and more generally the debate that we have about um, the Affordable Care Act, which has been so fierce about Medicaid expansion is really a proxy debate for a larger question about the role of government in our society and its ability to make people's lives better. Again, I have just followed kind of where I felt like um, something could make a difference and I just uh, ended up here. Joan, I, I can't think of a better way to end our chat today than that. For my part, I'm, I'm glad you made the choices you did. Thank you for being with us today. Well, thanks so much for having me, it was fun.